The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. I am delighted to be joined today by Peter Wood, who is president of the National Association of Scholars. He's also an author of several books, including Diversity Rules, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, and Roth, America Enraged. And we're going to be talking about the state of American education. Now, Peter, I I thought I'd get you on because uh, you are president of the National Association of Scholars. And there's been some quite troubling statistics recently on the state of American literacy. It's now something like one in four children in America grow up subliterate. And I think in California, the statistics are particularly bad. What's going wrong is, first of all, the American educational system made a detour about 12 years ago into what was called a common core, which was an approach to the English language arts, which demoted uh, literature in favor of just teaching kids how to argue. This comes at a time when literacy was already uh, suffering from several decades of what was called whole language instruction in which efforts to teach children to read through phonics or through being able to decipher new words for themselves were displaced by a kind of uh, gestalt approach to reading, which never worked very well, but it caught on with the teachers unions and became a the mainstay of American basic instruction in literacy. These things coincide with other social developments outside the school, the decline of the two-parent family, the astonishing rise in the number of children raised with one parent or no parents. Uh, Conditions were not set for the family to intervene in any constructive way with the deficits that the schools were imposing. So we find ourselves post-COVID with uh, a rather rapid descent into uh, either further illiteracy than we than we had before. Uh, this has worked its way through the entire American population. The United States's uh, literacy compared to the rest of the world is not very good. The uh, we rate right about the level of the Solomon Islands in the Pacific for overall literacy in the population, somewhere around seventy-two percent of. Americans are able to read, which means that they can read at at least the sixth grade level, but about half of the Americans who say they can read are reading at that, which is to say that they're capable of reading a comic book or a recipe, but not much beyond that. Yes. And you touched on the pandemic there, and in most of the reports about literacy now in America, and indeed in, in other countries, the lockdowns are increasingly blamed for a sharp decrease in educational standards. Um, To what extent do you think one can blame COVID? And to what extent did COVID just merely accelerate a process that was already well, well established? I'll be a little bit heterodox here. I don't think you can blame COVID at all. 
what you can blame is the shutdown of the schools during COVID, which interrupted children's education at every level um, and was supposedly to be offset by learning on the monitor at home. It didn't work out very well, but the teachers were in favor of the great shutdown and uh, combined with the already very weak approach to childhood literacy we had, the COVID shutdown uh, accelerated that decline. That's why we're now having what we call our uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress, that's NAEP, uh, that examines students in fourth, eighth, and 12th grade, showing just this astonishing collapse of literacy at especially the eighth grade level where those students have their educations interrupted for a prolonged period and contrary to the happy expectations that they would rapidly catch up, it hasn't happened. They've just fallen further and further behind. In fact, the Department of Education, which controls the NAEP tests, also now has a projection that these students will never catch up, that they will remain uh, way behind their grade level past high school graduation and into college. It's a quite a dire situation. And there's an obvious correlation between very poor educational standards and antisocial behavior and indeed crime. I think lots of studies have proved this in lots of different countries. Do you anticipate then that the pandemic and more particularly the lockdown will cause greater antisocial behavior? And, and more broadly, is there a sense in America, I've heard interviews with teachers saying this, that children are increasingly not just antisocial, but violently disruptive? Yes, well, of course, I, I'm not myself a teacher in the school, so I don't see this firsthand, but I do keep up on the matter. Yes, antisocial behavior is increasing and violence is increasing. These problems come allied with the unwillingness of, of our institutions of authority to do anything about them. So you're no longer permitted by the federal government to expel students who violently attack their teachers. That does very little for classroom discipline. It means that the, the hooligans that are already there are empowered. Uh, the other students are intimidated. There's a, a general decline in decorum in the classrooms that even to speak of decorum is, seems to me a bit odd at this point because we have a, a kind of roiling chaos in our schools. Some teachers are capable of handling that. Um, most of them aren't. So we have a very high rate of teacher burnout as well and replacement of the uh, teachers who were leaving the profession but others who were untried and unprepared for uh, a pretty chaotic situation. Trying to teach anything, let alone literacy, in that situation is very, very difficult. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned Common Core. Indeed, you've written a book about Common Core, uh, which I didn't mention at the beginning. It's called Drilling Through yeah. the Core, Why Common Core is Bad for American Education. Could you, for listeners that aren't aware of it, could you explain how Common Core came about, how it was introduced, the politics behind it, and the chances of it being sort of reversed? Well, I'll start with the chances of it being reversed. Um, the American public has pretty much vetoed the Common Core. Uh, so many states that adopted it have already officially unadopted it. 
the trouble is that uh, there is so much infrastructure put in behind it that it will linger in our classrooms a lot past the date in which people find it in any way acceptable. Uh, let me go back to the origin of it. In the uh, early part of this century, the issue that sort of riveted the attention of a lot of people was how to make up for the deficits between blacks and other minorities and Asians and whites in, in this country. The Common Core was initially proposed as a solution to that, uh, a solution by way of rejecting what was left of the traditional American curriculum and replacing it with something that was supposed to be much more scientific and shrewdly based, this uh, took the form of a curriculum that, as I mentioned, pretty much did away with teaching whole books or classic books. The notion was that students would learn to see reading as a way of gathering information, and the information in turn would be used as a way of uh, supporting arguments. Think of it as a kind of uh, approach to education modeled on training lawyers. You're going to prepare people to be able to argue anything with the basis of information on hand. It abolished the standalone teaching of other subjects like history and geography. They were just gone. They were going to be merged into this bigger category called English language arts. Now, some of this has to do with the complications of the American Constitution. Education in the US is officially left to the states and localities. It's not the business of the federal government. But education reformers had long been frustrated by their inability to uh, step in and fix the whole system at once from Washington. Uh, the Common Core had a ingenious solution to that problem, which was to corral all 50 states together to say, they were going to adopt the same educational approach. And once they had done that collectively, that would uh, release the federal government to have a free hand in this. This was during the Obama administration. The states initially were not very eager to sign on to it, but uh, the Obama administration created something called the Race to the Top, which offered uh, large amount of money to any state that would uh, sign up for the Common Core. So the states got bribed into accepting the Common Core. They accepted it before it was actually written. And uh, once it became clear what a, a mischievous curriculum it really was, states tried to back out. But the Department of Education, then head of it named Arnie Duncan, sued them. So getting out wasn't so easy. The next step of it was that to have a common curriculum across all subjects in all 50 states required a approach to testing. So there was, uh, in the initial stages of this, an attempt to create uh, nationwide tests. I say nationwide, but actually only 47 states signed up for this. But we went through a period in which all the textbooks in the country were rewritten with the Common Core in mind. Matter of trying to persuade students that reading was something that was both personally empowering or enlightening, as well as a step towards a common understanding of 
what our nation is and what you need to know in order to thrive here kind of went by the boards. We, we went into this period of, of thinking that we were going to prepare students for a world uh, designed around one particular man's uh, view of what it was worth learning. That man was named David Coleman, who is now the head of the college board in this country. So we saw the readjustment of our the SATs and uh, achievement tests aimed at students wanting to matriculate to college uh, also refabricated to be common core friendly. So there was a, a 10 year period or so of, of declining standards in the country brought by means of the, the imposition of an unwelcome curriculum. It seems then to me that it's uh, America's habit of falling into politically correct thinking uh, oh. that is to blame. And that in itself is a, it's a self-perpetuating problem because it, the smaller the number of people who can think critically, the less able people are to overturn these educational reforms. Is that right? Yes, that's right. There, there is a long history in the U.S. of lurching from one utopian solution to the next in education. Well, the one thing that I would say about education generally is that you shouldn't lurch ever. You should be uh, deciding on the essentials and sticking to them as best you can. Figure out what works reasonably well, and by application uh, year after year, you will get somewhere. But if you keep changing the uh, goals uh, every few months or every few years, uh, you end up with a situation in which nobody really understands what needs to be done. It's a miracle given how badly American K-12 education has been run for generations that we have anyone at all who is capable of uh, writing books, reading good books, doing higher math, and so on. We are uh, fortunate that some people rise above the levels of education that are on offer, but that's partly due to our having workarounds, that is, uh, families that can afford to hire tutors or send their students to uh, private academies. Uh, there are ways out of this system, but the great majority of Americans are subject to this substandard education and have been for a very long time. Is, is the solution or is, is, are the answers not also in America's constitutional DNA in that, hmm. uh, you know, you've, you've had the free schools, you've had academies program, which Britain copied a little bit. And also you have the ability at the higher education level, a lot of colleges are set up. There's enough freedom within America still for people to create educational institutions that can teach properly. Yes, experimentation is our saving grace. When, when the mainstay of education is, is corrupt or deficient, uh, people do still have the freedom to say, that's not working and I will go elsewhere. In the US, there's a lot of people who just pulled their children out of school altogether and are homeschooling them. Sometimes that works brilliantly, sometimes it doesn't, but at least it's showing the initiative that you don't have to accept what the government is shoveling out at you. There are uh, things called charter schools, which are uh, still officially public schools. They're paid for by taxpayers. 
that they've seceded from the rule of the teachers unions and of the uh, mainstream curricula. So those are bright spots. They don't reach anywhere near the percentage of students that are in the public schools, but uh, they are uh, certainly one way one can look at this with some reasonable hope. And to what extent does it break down along racial lines? Uh, I mean, we have a tendency to think perhaps African-American children fall behind because they have, tend to be poorer. They tend to be on the receiving end of very bad education. But I was struck by the statistics recently that showed that it's actually poor white children who are falling behind the fastest. There's certainly racial division that's mixed up in this at, at, at every stage, and it's a complicated subject. Early on, uh, black and white students perform pretty close to the same level, but it takes maybe by third or fourth grade that the discrepancies begin to show up. Now, why that is, is a matter of some contentious debate, but certainly part of it is the much higher rate of family dissolution or non-formation in parts of the black community. So the single most important factor for a student's rapid intellectual progress through the school system is having an intact family. Take that away and students will do poorly. Uh, does that correlate with poverty? To some degree it does, but poverty is not the, the only factor in it. Does it correlate with geography? Well, yes, uh, the city schools overall, although they cost way more than schools in other uh, rural and suburban areas, have wretched performance. And the black parts of the inner city are correctly seen as full of uh, the worst social pathologies that the country can provide. The pathologies that afflict the black community are increasingly afflicting white communities as well. So uh, yes, it's spreading. The problems here are, I would say, largely cultural and that uh, we've uh, developed an ethic in the black community here of minimal effort. So the task as uh, one uh, black educator put it is that the attitude among many black parents is that school is like pouring a beer into a beer mug. All you need to do is uh, have the mug and pour it in and everything else will take care of itself. The notion that the student has agency that must uh, engage and decide to make a consistent effort is largely missing in many parts of the black community and increasingly in the white community too. It's part of the problem that um... A lot of educators think that their role is to teach children cheaply about racism and that teaching students about America's racist past, slavery and so on, has taken precedent over actual education in the basics and, and things like literacy. I mean, you've written a book about the 1619 Project, and that's a clear example of you know, educators hijacking history so that they can tell this story to, to students about America's racist past, America's racism, and, and the original sin of American racism. The diversity, equity, inclusion uh, mantra has taken hold in our schools of education that prepare the teachers. The teachers love to see themselves as uh, 
champions of social justice and the way to do that is to start as early as possible to inform the minority students that they are victims of an oppressive system and to inform the white students that uh, they're responsible for that and should be ready at all points to apologize and to uh, give up the unearned privileges with which they were born. Uh, this doctrine, and it is nothing but a doctrine, uh, has gained the full-fledged support of America's teachers unions. Uh, it has become uh, a standard part of the curriculum at every level. How this sets up a pattern that interferes with the forms of education that would be more worthwhile is a topic that could uh, have me speak for quite some time. But let's say that uh, the 1619 project, which is the the idea that America began with the importation of captives from Angola in August of 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, uh, and has we have ever since been a nation that is based on the exploitation of black labor and ingenuity, and that the notions of our uh, having a commitment to uh, freedom and equality are simply a, a sham created to divert people from paying attention to our exploitative origins. All of that, uh, that little quasi-Marxist story, is now standard in American education. Another racial story within education in America that's, that's got some notice in the last few years is discrimination against Asian students on affirmative action grounds because Asian students tend to do well and work hard. Certain higher education institutions are discriminating against them. Is that close to being changed? We've recently had a big Supreme Court decision against affirmative action. Do you see the opportunity now for change against the diversity agenda? There's an opportunity, but it will take a great deal of hard work to realize that opportunity. Hundreds, maybe thousands of college presidents have announced their commitment to thwarting the Supreme Court's action by finding ways around the constitutional rules against discrimination on the basis of race. There are myriad faculty members who likewise are fully committed to the diversity agenda, which they see as righteous. Uh, Asian students uh, have an opportunity to demand fair treatment, but that is probably going to take filing more lawsuits as the colleges and universities figure out their ways to subvert the law. Uh, the only way to get the law enforced will be for people who have a grievance to come forward and undertake the time intensive, expensive process of litigating their way to victory. I have no doubt those victories will come. It does mean that once the Supreme Court handed down its decision a few weeks ago, the Roberts decision, the rest of it is up to us to make sure that decision is carried out. It's not going to be carried out by the Biden administration within hours of the Supreme Court's handing down its decision in the Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard case. President Biden held a conference in which he announced that the decision was a mistake and that he too would oppose it. So we have a, a government divided amongst itself on, on this matter. 
if it happens that we get a, a, a Republican or conservative in the White House in the next round, maybe that will change. But what I anticipate is that we are in for a, a long era of a decade or more of further litigation to turn this decision into a practical reality for Asians and for everybody else. You touch on the politics there. There was an election recently of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, and he won uh, as a Republican, campaigning quite a lot against uh, the introduction of critical race theory in schools. And a lot of parents were very exercised about it, and it was a big winning issue for him. Do you see education as something that Republican, presumably because the Democrats don't seem so keen to do it, Republican politicians can use to win, and then once they do win, they can perhaps change what's going on in American schooling and higher education? Yes, I do. I think that uh, Youngkin is a good example of a politician who wasn't terribly invested in this issue until it became clear from public reactions to the critical race theory invasion of the schools that there was something there that would turn votes. Uh, certainly, we've seen success on this in other states, in, in Florida, Ohio, Texas, that uh, suggest that this is a winning strategy for conservative politicians. But let me add that uh, this comes after decades in which the Republican Party had essentially checked out of any interest in what was going on in schools. The notion had been, well, that's a democratic stronghold. What's the use of fighting it? We'll just uh, wait it out. A totally failed strategy, but there are plenty of Republican politicians whose careers were built during the years of uh, complacency. So they have to be retooled to figure out that this is an issue that will actually work for them, or they should be replaced by politicians who get it. Um, finally, Peter, I'd like to ask you about the subject, this very big media subject this year, which is artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of concern about the impact artificial intelligence is going to have on schooling and you know students can just use it instead of actually doing any work and so on. I know that you're not a teacher as you said but I wondered if you had any insight into how AI is changing education already and what the dangers of that might be. I think it has been discovered by many millions of uh, students in schools, it's been discovered by teachers so it's already having a lot of influence. Teachers were not for the most part, all that focused on teaching their students how to write well to begin with. So we are now faced with a situation in which the, the motivation for that hard task of learning to write really well has been sapped by a machine that can do it for you. In the long term, I suspect that we're going to see very deep changes in education. It may be that as the process of adjusting what we teach and how we teach it catches up with the astonishing abilities of artificial intelligence, we will have to rethink our whole approach to education. Uh, it will not do to have smart machines capable of doing work that few humans are capable of doing. That this utopia has been imagined by any number of science fiction writers, uh, but it's right upon us now, it's, it's happening. And uh, how far it will go before we realize that 
artificial intelligence is nothing without real human intelligence behind it is going to be a, a, a matter of, uh, of concern for me and people like me for the rest of our lives, I fear. And actually, this is the last question. I know I said the last one last time. But uh, you've written fascinatingly about anger in America. You wrote a book called A Bee in the Mouth about anger in America today back in the, was it 1990s? No, two, uh, early 2000s. 2006. 2006, time flies. And you've written one more recently called Wrath, America Enraged. I wonder what you think about the relationship between bad education and the inability of people to control their anger. Is education, a good education, a good way of teaching people to control themselves? Yes, a good education is an essential part of that. One learns the power of emotional restraint by being in a context where you can see emotional restraint being performed by the adults around you as a child. Uh, if what you see around you is adults that indulge in temper tantrums for even trivial reasons, one learns that uh, that's a, a great way to get attention. And children generally want attention. So the task of teaching emotional control, of course, belongs first of all in the family, but schools have much there to contribute as well. There's something called social emotional learning, which has become a major trend in our schools. Social emotional learning is not meant to displace cognitive learning, but generally it does. It's emphasizing that we need to teach children a certain kind of emotionality. That emotionality is seldom one of the forms of uh, stoicism or deep control or, or readiness to uh, look for the quiet solution rather than the uh, noisy or violent solution. So you have touched on another major problem that is afflicting our education and our country. Well, Peter, we'll end it there, but thank you very much for coming on to Americano, and I hope we'll get you on again soon. Thank you for having me.